was a good workout. <sighs> what? What's that, Leah? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I emptied the dryer. Sure, I can bring up the clothes. Yeah, sure. Shoot, do I have a meeting tonight? Dang it, it's already 6.30. Let me look at my calendar here. Let's see. Oh, no. Who is it? Oh, it's just Deacon Mark. Ignore. Does Father Joshua know that he's celebrating this Sunday? Shoot, did I tell him that? Did I write him that email? I wonder if the ushers got that message about putting the insert into the bulletins. Darn it. Man, I'm hungry. I wonder if Leah wants to go to Weber's tonight. I hope so. I could really use an ice cream. Please be seated. That's often our life, isn't it? I don't know about you, that's often my life. Today, we're having a conversation about listening. And I don't know if you could hear Deacon Mark playing the role of the Almighty there as I was um, being continually distracted and not listening to my master's voice. But oftentimes, that's how it goes, right? Open with me, if you would, to John chapter 10. We're going to talk a little bit about listening. We're going to talk a little bit about hearing the master's voice. Here we are, continuing in John and Eastertide, as we're doing. Um, and we pick up with John chapter 10, verse 22. What's Jesus doing? Well, at the time, it's the feast of the dedication in Jerusalem. And John tells us that it's winter time, and Jesus is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, that probably doesn't mean anything to you, but for the Jews, this meant something, and they would have had something in the back of their mind the entire time that this conversation's going on. Does anybody know what is the Feast of Dedication? And my, those of you that have gone to seminary, you can't answer this. <laughs> What's the Feast of Dedication? Anybody? You, you know this one. It's the rededication of the first temple. What's the modern name for this holiday? You know it. Is this easy? Christmas time. The lamps get lit and put in the windows. Hanukkah. Yeah. So this is the feast of Hanukkah. Jesus is celebrating Hanukkah here. The first, the feast of the dedication. And um, he's walking around in the temple as this feast has gone on. Historian Josephus talks about the Feast of Hanukkah a little bit. He, he tells us that according to, um, that according to uh, the traditions there of the Jews, the candles are lit on the candelabra and the candles put in the window. And this is to remind God's people in the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament that 
the light of God has shone upon them when they barely dared to hope for it, is what Josephus says. The light of God has shone upon them when they barely dared to hope for it. And what's going on on Hanukkah is that the Greeks had taken over the temple and they had desecrated it. Emperor Antiochus Epiphanes, I can't remember what number he is, the third or something. It's good enough to say his name, right? Um, had brought a pig into the temple and slaughtered it on the altar and completely desecrated the temple. And so before Jesus, another man by the name of Judas Maccabeus, which is known as Judas the Hammer, comes and he forcefully rids the temple of the Greeks, drives them out, frees Israel for a time before the Romans come in. So this is a patriotic holiday that they're celebrating, talking all about Judas Maccabeus, who was a Messiah. He was a Messiah in their eyes. So here we have Jesus walking along the temple in the midst of that celebration. And look with me at verse 24. And Jesus was walking in the temple, the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. You see why they feel he's keeping them in suspense? They're once again being oppressed, aren't they? And once again, they are crying out, for the Messiah, you know, like the dude we just celebrated, Judas Maccabeus. When are you going to finally do something, Jesus? If you're the Messiah. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock Whoa, those are some harsh words, aren't they? What's Jesus referring to? Well, if we look earlier in John's gospel, what has gone on so far that would denote him as the Messiah or the Christ? Just really quickly, in chapter 5, Jesus has healed a 38-year-old invalid, someone who had been lame his whole life at the sheep's gate. Then in chapter 5, Jesus claims that God is his father, 523. And 524, he's laid out his authority over death itself. He then feeds miraculously 5,000 people. And in John 7, 25 through 30, we read, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they, the Pharisees, seek to kill. And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Remember, that's before today's gospel passage. So it seems strange that they're asking Jesus if he's really the Messiah, when already there's speculation that he is the Messiah, which is, of course, interchangeable with the word Christ, the anointed one. What's going on here? 
Why does Jesus answer them so harshly? Look again with me at verse 25 and 26. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not a part of my flock. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So is this really an informational problem that we're dealing with here? Is this really a matter of comprehension, truly asking whether this man, Jesus, is the Christ or the Messiah? No, it's not. It's not. There's an insincerity in the questioning here. But let's not be too hard on the Jews that are around him here. It's always amazing to me when people will say that, you know, if God would just reveal himself to me, I would follow him. You've ever heard that? Perhaps you yourself have said that at some point in your life. You know, it's bizarre because such people in that state are one of three things. They're one, either delusional. They're two, ignorant of their own nature as human beings, or they're three, flat out lying to themselves, or a combination of those three. Delusional, ignorant, or just lying to themselves. Many people claim to want to love God and to want to know God with all of their heart, their soul, and their mind, but the truth is that they don't. Not that they don't love God, but they don't even want to love God, is the truth. Because they have no interest in actually meeting him where he promises to meet them. They don't want to hear their master's voice. And what a sad thing that is. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. That's how he's answering the Jews. No person can hear or find God without God's self-revelation. We know that, right? Jesus himself says that earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 6, verse 44, when he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And yet, we're also given a promise in Matthew 7, 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. So what can we make of this passage? Again, why does Jesus say to the Jews in the gospel, because, why does he say what he says to them? Well, it's because they aren't earnest. They're not really seeking. They don't really want to know the Messiah. They don't really want to know the Christ. Again, they want someone like Judas Maccabeus, who they're celebrating. They say they want the Christ to deliver them, but to selectively deliver them. Deliver us from the Romans. Let's not talk about sin. St. Augustine gives this commentary on this passage. For to those, for to approach, rather, is to believe. The one who believes approaches. The one who denies moves away. The soul is not moved by the feet, but by the affections. They had become cold, icy cold, to the sweetness of loving Jesus. 
They had been cold, become cold, icy cold, to the sweetness of loving Jesus. Jesus was probably walking in the temple here because it's cold outside. John tells us it's winter, and we know the feast occurs around Christmas, our modern Christmas. But the coldness outside is nothing compared to the coldness of the hearts of those that are listening to him here. These folks have no interest in the truth. And back in philosophy, when I was an undergrad, we had a name for people like this. We called them those that were epistemically vicious. Epistemically vicious. What does that mean? Epistemology is how you know what you know. Viciousness is being viceful. Put them together. To be epistemically vicious is to not care about how you know what you know, not care about the truth, not be willing to investigate it, and to add this to a vice. You see, there's intellectual sins as well as moral sins. And this is an intellectual sin, to be epistemically vicious, to not want to know the truth. You see, such people, rather than wanting to be shaped by the truth, wish to shape the truth instead. Rather than taking themselves and putting themselves in the hands of truth, they would rather cut that piece off of it or drill through that part of truth because that's not really appetizing to me. I don't really want to deal with that part of it. Such people cannot begin to see God because God is truth or hear the good shepherd's voice because the good shepherd speaks truth. They're cut off temporarily, and they're in danger of being cut off eternally. Often, such people try to crush truth. They take it to the next level. Look at what happens immediately after our gospel passage today, if you have your Bibles open. How do they treat Jesus? He goes on to say, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Verse 31. The Jews picked up stones against, again, to stone him. Do you see? There's the appeal to power. I don't like what you're saying. I'm going to crush it. But of course, it's not Jesus' time. And Jesus gets away. The problem with being epistemically vicious, again, is that it cuts you off. And it makes you selectively deaf to God's voice. It's possible for a Christian to be epistemically vicious. Not just for those who first encounter Christ. And that's the real scary part. I was reading a blog by a brilliant priest friend, Father Steve Rice, this week. And he's one of these pastors who's also a theologian. And he addresses this topic by referring back to a 19th century priest who writes, We self-impose deafness in many ways. After all, there is, most, there is in most cases a reluctance to bear or at least to pledge themselves to bear Christ's yoke. A reluctance to give up the service of sin once and for all. A lingering love of their own ease, of their own will, 
of indolence, of carnal habits, of the good opinion of men who they don't even respect, a distrust of their perseverance and holy resolves, grounded on a misgiving about their present sincerity. This is why men will not come to Christ for life. They know that he will not impart himself to them unless they consent to devote themselves to him. You see, the truth is that Christians can become deaf to their master's voice for all of those reasons. Let's just briefly look at them. A reluctance to bear Christ's yoke. What's that mean? It's a lack of obedience. Not wanting to obey God. Not wanting to take his commandments seriously. A reluctance to give up sin. What is that? Well, it's simply preferring something other than God's will above God's will. Right? I like my sin more than I love you, Jesus. So I'm going to go sin. Love of one's own ease, will, and indolence. What's that? Laziness. Laziness. Not setting your priorities, not ordering your life, not putting God first. Carnal habits. What are those? The desires of the flesh, right? Constantly being distracted by Weber's ice cream or by something that I use to medicate and cope with life instead of God. Shame and popularity. I love how Cardinal Newman says it. He says, you know, being concerned with the, um, being concerned with how other men see you who you don't even respect, right? How, but how many of us, I mean, it's, it's stupid when you say it that way, but how many of us do that? We're concerned with how we look to people that we don't even really care what they view, how they view us. And yet, we're, somehow we're concerned at the same time. Shame and popularity. Distrust in holy resolves. What's that? Well, I'm just going to screw up anyway, so I might as not bother to try. Right? How many of us go through that in our prayer lives or in our devotional or even perhaps in Sunday attendance? These all are self-imposed deafness and it's dangerous and it's not Christianity because it's not following Christ. It's being satisfied simply to sit in your own spiritual cesspool rather than hearing the master's call to come out and be clean. Jesus is not fine with that, friends. And he calls us out. But to hear that call, one must be willing to listen and hear it. How do we listen, you might ask? Well, with an unhardened heart, with devotion to the commands of our Lord. Such deafness in these Christians is not just compounded is not just had, but it's also compounded when on top of these sins, on top of these bad habits, we add the habits of not regularly coming to church, not regularly receiving the Lord's Supper and the true presence of Christ and Holy Communion, not opening his word outside of Sunday morning, further cutting ourselves off from him. Newman continues, he says, these Christians may be told of their love, of the Lord's love for them, his self-denying mercy when on earth, 
his free gifts, and his long-suffering, since they will not be influenced. And why? Because the fault is in their heart. They do not like God's service, is the truth of it. He continues, They know full well what they would have if they might choose. Christ is said to have all things and done all things for us. Far from it, they say. He is not a mediator suited to our cause. Give life. Give holiness. Give truth. Give a savior to deliver from sin. This is not enough, they say. No, we want a savior to deliver in sin, not of sin. We want a savior to deliver in sin, not of sin. That last line should pierce you as it does me. You see, the problem with these Jews in John 10 is that a problem that is not isolated to them, it pervades church history. And if we're honest, it pervades all of our lives, right? The problem is often we really don't want to follow Jesus. The problem is often our actions, our hearts, are not in alignment with his, and our will is not in alignment with his, and we don't want it to be in alignment with his because we prefer these other things. We want to be delivered in sin, not of sin. What's the difference? To be delivered in sin is literally to have your overabundant cake and eat it too. Right? To have God and Jesus and to do what I want. To satisfy my carnal pleasures and serve Jesus as my Lord. Now look, we have entire churches today that trumpet this. Right? I don't have to tell you guys this. It's true in the mainline churches. It's true in non-denom churches. There's lots of churches that say you can have your cake and eat it too. You can be a Christian. You can just come and put money in the plate or whatever, tithe. And we're not going to bother you about your sin. You just, you know, show up once in a while. It's good. It's that consumer Americanistic culture, right? To be, to have a Savior who lets us remain in sin and doesn't pull us out of sin. But what's the problem with that? It sounds really good. Lots of times those modern buzzwords are, are happy to our ears, right? Words like acceptance, inclusivity, right? Not judging, welcoming everybody, right? All those sound so good to us, but it's a false message because there is no salvation in that message. Salvation means being saved from something, not being let to sit in that cesspool that you've made for yourself. God loves you too much to allow you to do that. Jesus the Messiah loves you too much to allow you to do that. And me too. Thank God. You see, it sounds great because to be honest, most of us like to wink at other people's sins because it means that they'll turn around and wink at our sins, right? Oh, well, you sin too and I sin, so it's all okay. It's all equal. No. We are called to a life of holiness, to a life of obedience to the master. 
Saint Cyril of Alexandria writes this. He says, we take the word to hear to imply obedience. When Jesus says the word, my sheep hear my voice, implies obedience to what's being said. People who hear God are known by him. No one is entirely unknown by God. But to be known this way is to become part of his family. A group of people meeting in a building, claiming to follow Jesus without this message, can claim all they want to be a church. They can put altars up, they can put crosses all around, and it is no church. The same goes for individuals. Those who call themselves Christians, who don't want to follow Jesus, truly are not Christians. You can wear vestments, you can wear crosses, but you're not a Christian if you're not willing to leave the sin behind and be delivered by Christ. It's a hard word, but it's what Jesus is saying here. To be a Christian sympathizer, to have Christian values, to laud the church in Western civilization is not to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to follow Christ. I'm reading Evelyn Underhill's work, The Spiritual Life, in order to help our Lakewood Fellowship get underway this week. And she had a great quote on hearing God. She says this, So many Christians are like deaf persons at a concert. They study the program carefully. They believe every statement made in it. They speak respectfully of the quality of music, but only really hear a phrase now and again. So they have no notion of all the mighty symphony with which the universe is filled. But we're called to so much more than that, aren't we? You're called to so much more than that, as am I. Now, how are you at hearing the master's voice? How are you at dealing with distraction? How are you, how are you at dealing with heterodoxy and heresy? Do you discern it and challenge it? Or do you just kind of, oh, that's okay. Where are you hearing the master's voice in your scripture reading, in your reception of the holy sacrament, and in your prayer life? This challenge, friends, that Jesus gives so harshly to the Jews is a challenge that he gives to you and me if you're going to be part of the family, get to the table. You should be clawing to get to the table every week to be with your Lord and Master. You should be, we should be, because this isn't just you. We should be <laughs> clawing to get to the table. We should be clawing to open God's word when we get the opportunity to see what he has to tell us. The Holy Spirit's in you doing this. Whispering in your ear, Sean, 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 hear my voice, love me, obey my commandments. He's saying that to you too. Are you hearing him? Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you don't give up on us. Lord, we thank you that we have this promise in this very passage that nothing can snatch us from your hands. Lord, we ask that you would enliven us with your Holy Spirit, that we would, in fact, put together those things in our life that need to be put together and have broken down those things in our lives that are not in accordance to your will. We ask, Father, that you would draw us to yourself, not just initially, but daily, that we might practice your presence and love you as you loved us. And of course, we can't do that. And we give you thanks that you love us so much more. Help us to act in it. In Jesus' name, amen.